AJ at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. My guest on this episode is Dr. Gideon Fujiwara, assistant professor of Japanese and East Asian history and the coordinator of Asian studies at the University of Lethbridge. His latest publication is Channeling the Undercurrents, Fusetsudome Information Access and National Political Awareness in 19th Century Japan, published in the summer 2017 issue of the Journal of Japanese Studies. Dr. Fujiwara, thank you for being here. Thank you, Dr. Gunnar. How do you view the position of the Meiji Restoration in the context of global history? The Meiji Restoration is so interesting to study because, um, you know, I think you find a lot of parallels between the Restoration and social political change in other parts of the world. So I, I think that you can think of the Meiji Restoration within a larger age of revolution. And in fact, I recently I wrote a, a, a blog entry for a history blog, a, a terrific blog, uh, ageofrevolutions.com. It's uh, one of the editors is uh, my, my good uh, colleague at the University of Lethbridge, uh, Dr. Cindy Aramis. And so the, yeah, the Meiji Restoration, I mean, in scholarship today, right, I mean, you know, people talk about it as a, rest, as a revolution, you know, as a small revolution or a bloodless revolution and, and you know, explaining why or, or some might say it's not a revolution. But, but I, I think in a broader sense, it, it is a revolution because uh, you see a lot of uh, accelerated uh, change in, in politics and society. Uh, and so... Uh, Japan, I mean, from internally, obviously, there was, there was calls for change, uh, but, but also with you know, um, interaction with, with Western, industrially advanced Western nations and, you know, ideas of the Enlightenment and, and uh, you know, people reading and learning about the French Revolution and, and social change uh, elsewhere. You, you do see similarities in terms of how, right, the people gain a voice, just the industrialization and, and um, sort of modern reforms. Uh, so there are, are, are certainly interesting parallels uh, between what's happening in Japan in the 19th century and, and elsewhere in the world. But, but also, I think there are sort of unique aspects to it in, in the sense that, I, I mean, during this period, we see Japan learning from these Western nations, but ad- adopting also uh, right, Chinese models, you know, Confucianism, and the idea of the virtuous uh, ruler you know, for Japan's sovereign. And, and also, right, going back to the 7th century of Japan and, and trying to revive these uh, ancient institutions. Uh, and so, right, there, there is, I mean, if you look at Asia, you know, Japan, you know, people often think about, you know, Japan and the Thai kingdom and how their monarchs and their governments, right, lear- sent students to Europe and, and learning from these uh, uh, other other uh, industrially advanced nations and and bringing that knowledge back and, and being able to ward off uh, imperial threats from, from outside. Within Asia also, right, I mean, this, this knowledge helped Japan to, to modernize and usher in social change, maybe quicker, say, than, than China. But of course, we, we also see uh, the rise of Japan as, as an imperial power and a colonizing power. Uh, so, so, yeah, lots of interesting comparisons made uh, between right, uh, the Restoration and, and uh Right, revolutions elsewhere. I, I guess one one sense in which it's not a radical revolution is is that it's not really a revolution from below. Uh, you know, it's not that the peasants are <laughs> rising up and, and toppling 
all of the elites. But uh, I mean, we, we do see these powerful southwestern domains, Satsuma, Choshu, Tosa, leading the charge and, and breathing life into the um, imperial court and the, the teenage emperor. <laughs> And making him a symbol of of uh, right this new government. Uh, so so yeah, it, it, I mean it's it's in that sense you know there is a uniqueness to it in the sense that right it's other elites <laughs> toppling you know the uh, previous uh, elites that were the Tokugawa uh, family. And right, I mean the the emperor himself, the imperial system is is an ancient institution that that gets sort of revitalized and modernized. So as opposed to uh, right, you know, the French monarchy being toppled by the well, you know, being being uh, dealt a serious blow, and and then the the creation of the republic there, uh, in in Japan, the emperor is used as a rallying point and a symbol of of the the change. I, I think you're absolutely right. There's no there's no storming of the Bastille as there is in yes, Paris. Yes. And the, this narrative of the Meiji Restoration as a bloodless mm, re- revolution. Yes. Yes. This touches on one of the big debates about the Meiji Restoration. Is it, is it a rupture in Japanese history or not? Yeah, I think we can talk about continuities and maybe some antecedents of modernity during the Tokugawa period. But where, where do you fall in this debate? Is 1868 a rupture point? Is, is, is this a meaningful date in Japanese history? Is this the start of a revolution? Well, I, I think there is accelerated change. Uh, and, uh, I mean, we see calls for change well, throughout the 19th century, but, you know, these, these calls get louder, you know, in 1853 with, with uh, uh, Commodore Perry's arrival. And, but, I mean, these are, of course, you know, representing uh, voices of displeasure, anger towards the, the government and, and anger towards the foreign threats. And, but, but it's still, uh, well, the samurai elite are still running the, the government. And, and so in that sense, it's not... Right, a revolution from below where the peasants are toppling all the privileged uh, few at the top. Uh, so in that sense, there there are still still continuities, of course. But also, I was just actually spending the last uh, uh, couple hours at the uh, rare books collection and and you know looking at some Tokugawa maps, you mm-hmm. know, and then waiting to to see those things and. And, uh, and it's it's great to see anytime you can see documents, the real original documents, and and touch them not too much, but you know just enough to sort of get their texture. Uh, and I was looking at yeah maps from 1867, 68, right, right maps that were just created and redrawing the political boundaries of uh, say Mutsu Dewa, you know Tohoku, uh, Aomori. You know, really noticing the creation of the Aomori prefecture, which was a uh, um, product of amalgamating former enemy rival domains and, and creating this new political entity. So, so I mean, certainly the people there would feel change, and, and suddenly their, their sworn enemies who they had fought bloody battle with uh, are now fellow <laughs> members of the same uh, prefecture. So, so I, I think that, yeah, you, you can certainly see I don't, I don't know if I'd use the word rupture, but, but certainly accelerated change. And, and um, yeah, I, I think that you, you would see uh, significant differences uh, before and, and, and after the, the restoration.
were talking before about how the, the Meiji Restoration, we can think about it in the context of these global revolutions, like the yes. French Revolution. But uh, of course, with the French Revolution, there, there's always this popular notion of the grassroots revolution, mm-hmm. the storming of the Bastille, <laughs> of course. Uh, and people say, well, in Japan, there is no, mm-hmm. there is no blood in the revolution. Mm-hmm. There is no storming of the Bastille. But then we do have uprisings, yes. the Yonaoshi, Eijinaika, uh, yes. uh, Uchikowashi riots. Yes. And while I don't think anyone would say this is the same level of uh, grassroots participation that you see in France, in the same way that the people's rights movement, like you're saying, kind of pushed the government a little bit. Mm-hmm. I, I said it's about 2% of the population, yeah. I think, that has yeah. uh, the right to vote in yes. the first elections and then... Finally, in 25 is, is when universal male suffrage is yes, adopted. Yes. And so it, it's slow, and it, but it does seem to be pushed by grassroots movements a little bit. So mm-hmm. we, would, you, would you put the 1850s peasant rebellions in that same context of the people's rights movement? Or are these completely separate? Mm, I, I mean, I, I think that those uh, precursors, I mean, they, they do... Um, I mean, they do provide that that force, right? And and uh, right from the eighteen fifties. Uh, I mean, generally speaking, like well, especially with with the, um, the arrival of the black ships and and uh, you know, people's voices are are being more loudly projected uh, right through these right Yonashi movements and and uh, rebellions and and also print media. I mean, we know that eighteen fifty three, eighteen fifty four. There's a boom in the Kaoraban prints, right, and reporting on the uh, arrival of Perry, and and uh, so in terms of sheer volume, I mean, the, these prints are being printed and, and being consumed, but also the uh, the rigid or the restrictions on how much can be reported. I mean, these are uh, being rejected, and 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 so people are now more openly reporting on on political events, and and so uh, right through so the the 50s and the 60s. Yeah, just just people's voices right, of displeasure, calls for change, and becoming louder. The uh, the Tokugawa Bakufu having to respond, and then, and uh, and then of course we see the rise of the newspaper. And um, recently, my my article uh, w- was published uh, with the journal Japanese Studies, and it looks at uh, a different form of uh, informational text, the Fusetsu Dome, uh, and there's hundreds of these uh, that uh, appeared across Japan. Uh, and they're not, I mean, they're, they're different from the Kaoraban or the um, uh, Nishikiya in the sense that, uh, you know, they're not as voluminous, right? We're talking about hundreds as opposed to, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands or maybe, you know, a million. But uh, they're, they're very important in the sense that they're capturing very sensitive political documents. And often, you know, they're, sometimes there are these merchant class commoners that are producing these things. So, you, you know, it's sort of like the... Uh, the uh, WikiLeaks phenomenon, you know, today happening back, you know, in the 1850s, where somehow these merchant class uh, scholars in the in the uh, in the towns are, are acquiring sensitive political information that just you know was not accessible previously, and so we have a, a rising uh, national awareness of of you know what's happening politically, and this is also aided by the uh, loosening of of. Uh, the social classes, right? So greater social mobility, uh, merchants, townspeople are interacting with samurai and getting this information. And so uh, people are accessing the information. Uh, the government is no longer able to contain the information. And then finally, right, when, when the restoration is carried out, you have something like the um, the Charter Oath, right, that, that you know, explicitly says that 
that uh, public discussions will be had and, and um, information will be sort of uh, shared and, and accessed. And, and while this doesn't, I mean, it doesn't mean that, you know, free speech is, is completely uh, realized. But, but yeah, I, I think that slowly, you know, people gain a voice and then the government is not, I mean, if they, if they do implement uh, policies, you know, there will be resistance, like, say, with the, um, uh, you know, when they introduce um, universal education. I, um, I mean, peasant families are, are uh, you know, troubled by this, in, you know, because uh, the economic unit of the family, uh, right. right, in the villages is disrupted, and, and you know, these, these, these poor peasant families have to pay for this education, you know, and so it's... it's uh, so, so it's, it's, yeah, the process of modern reform and, and change obviously takes, takes time. But, but, yeah, you see sort of the samurai elite from the Southwest, you know, leading this charge. Uh, but, but it's in terms of the commoners, right, I mean, you, you do see um, them mobilized. Well, uh, you have some armies that are conscripting, right, from, from all different classes across Japan, but, but also with the, the freedom and, and people's rights movement. The aware, sort of educated leaders of the of the movement, but but also, yeah, it does sort of help to mobilize uh, the the commoner classes. Talking about some of the traditions that are brought back in the construction of Japanese modernity after the Meiji Restoration. There is definitely the sense of crisis in mm, Japan, mm, I, I'd say, in, in the 1860s. And it's, there's pressure from foreign threats, but then there's the internal troubles, mm, too. Mm, there's mm, Naiyu Gaikan. Yeah. And the Meiji state, like you said, the samurai from Satsuma and Shoshu very effectively wield tradition. Yes, yes. As a way to establish this new regime. It, yeah. Like a, a Heratunian, it's called it, you know, putting this patina of, of tradition onto the new Meiji state. Yeah. Today you're going to be talking about the Meiji Utakai ceremony. Yes, yes. Is this another example of, of how the state brings back certain traditions in the construction of modernity, perhaps as a, an, an invented tradition? Yeah, no, I, I think that the Utakai, um, Utakai Hajime uh, ceremony, it, you know, it is a good example of one of these uh, uh, ceremonies, uh, rituals. Well, well, this one in particular, the first documented case is said to be you know, the first month of uh, 1267, uh, uh, during the reign of uh, Emperor Kameyama. And, but of course, right, I mean, uh, waka composition, uh, the composition of waka poetry at the court has been, had been going on for much, much uh, longer, uh, you know, from, from earlier times. Uh, but, but it is, yeah, we see in the first few years of Meiji, we see this, uh, this ancient tradition that, that had been, practiced uh, exclusively within the court, you know, with, with the, the imperial family and courtiers uh, and just sort of, you know, within, within a confined group, uh, this would be opened up to the public, right, and, and, and uh, accepting poems composed by, by people of, of the different classes. And, and this is all part of, right, making the emperor and empress visible to the people, um, you know, making the emperor and empress, you know, the, the people's monarchs, and, and also, I mean, it is a part of that larger process, I think, of, of creating that, the, the modern uh, nation and the, the, the nation of, of subjects right, uh, that, that would make up um, uh, Meiji Japan. I mean, the, the actors that, uh, well, uh, Shimoza Yasumi is um, 
a kokugaku nativist scholar uh, from the north, uh, from Tsugaru, and he's the one that submits this uh, petition to to the uh, the court to, you know, to ask that um, the court accept submissions from from commoners. And and aiding him is Fukuba Bise uh, from Tsuano Domain, uh, right? One of the one of the uh, right. I mean, he he leads the reestablishing of uh, uh, court rights, uh, Shinto rights. Uh, he was a tutor to the uh, Emperor Meiji, of course, and. And so, yeah, we see these uh, kokugaku scholars versed in the Shinto tradition, right, wanting to right, uh, put, put these ceremonies to, to the fore. And uh, so, it, it went, you know, the first few years that uh, the court receives um, submissions from, from across the populace, I mean, there's, you know, thousands of these poems that are submitted. And, and I, you know, there, when you read about the, um, the, the changes, uh, I mean, there, there's uh, lots of criticism about, okay, how the, the waka are not uh, composed like they traditionally were, uh, you know, following all the conventions of the court. Uh, and, but but that's, that's a result of right, opening it up to the public and, and making more people, right, uh, able to, to um, uh, participate in it. But, but yeah, the, the Utakai Hajime is certainly a, a good example of um, an ancient or an older tradition, at least from the medieval times, that's sort of re reestablished, uh, reinvented, and it ma- made into a national uh, ritual um, uh, based based around the court. It seems like a, a perfect illustration of mm. all classes, high and low, will, yes. will combine their efforts. Like you're saying, with uh, now you have a popular walk of poetry. Yes, yes. Everybody at any class. A truly egalitarian idea <laughs> can now submit and read in front of the emperor mm-hmm. and really does embody this whole egalitarian spirit of the Meiji Restoration. Yeah, and as I will uh, speak about uh, in the in the lecture, um, yeah, we, we look at the experiences of Shimozan Yasumi in his own uh, domain and and the people that he was associating with the other scholars, and, and they were not all samurai. Uh, you had right, merchant merchants, and you had uh, Shinto priests, and uh, you had a, a female uh, poet uh, painter uh, within their within their circle as well, and uh, right these were his classmates uh, right from the at least the 1850s on. Uh, they, these were his fellow uh, uh, poets, uh, you know, with whom he exchanged po- poems, and you know he would also call on these on these poets to submit poems for his for his own collection. Uh, so, so there's a, an inter- interesting uh, dynamic there, and and so I certainly see uh, his own experiences within his domain and, and the loosened sort of class boundaries that that would would uh, inform what he does, you know, when he um, submits the petition to the court. But but you know this is obviously happening happening across uh, right different parts of Japan. But but yeah, I, I think. Uh, but you know, it's still within a right a, a certain group that that have access to education. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, uh, uh, yeah, it, it is interesting to see some of this change happening. Well, in the latter half of the Tokugawa period, and then, and then we see it uh, further in, in Meiji. Talking about commoners, mm-hmm. peasants, teachers, women around Japan who are benefiting from education and, and using this new education and becoming more involved in construction of, I think, what you could say is Japanese modernity mm-hmm. and stru- or con- by resuscitating Japanese traditions, being in- more involved in political life and yeah. public life mirrors what happens in the, pe- in the popular rights movement, right? Because mm-hmm. you get these village-level political associations yes. for people who, who do go to schools 
They are discussing current events in the world. They're yeah. drawing up draft constitutions. Yeah. Is this just a coincidence? Or, I mean, is this maybe the poems who we have an egalitarian spirit of poetry the same uh, way that we have an egalitarian uh, spirit of constitutions? Yeah, no, I, I, that's, a, that's an interesting parallel to make, I think. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I think that with, with e- e- any of these, well, activists, um, whether they're um, uh, moving for right, uh, poetry or, or, you know, for, for uh, people's rights, um, I mean, they, they knew a, a certain community um, locally or, or they knew, um, uh, you know, the inequalities and, and um, their limited access to, to political, well, to, you know, to the vote and, and uh, education or um, uh, occup- right, work, work opportunities. Uh, and and so, so, yeah, I mean, that, I, I suppose that becomes their sort of uh, base for, for, for action and, and, and mobilizing. Uh, but but yeah, I think you you, you I, I think we can see sort of these calls for change in, in different in different areas, right? Well, people's rights, education, women's rights, um, you know, and, and something like right, uh, poetry and and um, right the pursuit of culture and and, and uh, literature. Uh, yeah, you, you see it there as well. So at the University of Lethbridge, where you, where you teach, when you teach Japanese history, what are some of the themes that you use to teach your students about the Meiji Restoration? So at the University of Lethbridge, uh, I've been part of two very exciting initiatives uh, since since arriving there. I guess uh, what uh, five and a half years ago. Um, so one is uh, well, th- well, we created a world history. Uh, you know, this is our, our new intro course. And uh, you know, really, uh, a, a good course and a good uh, second alternative to our, our students. Um, Western civilization being being the other one, uh, and the other initiative being uh, the creation of the Asian Studies minor program. Uh, this happened m- my second year there, and you know, really, uh, I've had great colleagues in in history and Asian studies there, and and um, uh, and. In all of my courses, I would say, yeah, so with my world history, uh, history, uh, history 1200 course, uh, and, well, when I do main themes in East Asian history uh, at the second year level, that's a history course, uh, of course, I'll, I'll cover the Meiji Restoration. Uh, even, say, say when the, in the world history course, I, I do talk about um, the Meiji Restoration within this uh, period of, uh, right, the, the larger era of uh, revolutions and, and creating of, of nation states and, and uh, nationalism. And, and so uh, because we're covering, you know, these major events, you know, sometimes uh, uh, 10 minutes at a time, right? Uh, you know, I think, I think I, I've, I've talked about the Restoration sort of uh, alongside uh, Canadian Confederation or creation of, of Imperial Russia and shortly after the American and French revolutions, right? So, so lots of, lots of change, but, but certainly, yeah, I, I will um, link it up to themes of revolution. Um, 
enlightenment ideals, uh, social political change, um, right, uh, uh, inequalities, right, uh, uh, the, the uh, uh, discriminations faced by women, um, and uh, looking also at the, um, the relationship between the state and ind indigenous peoples, um, so in Japan, right, the, the Meiji state, or the Tokugawa state before that, but the Meiji state and, and the, the Ainu. Uh, and, uh, and then, you know, when, when I look at Canada, there's a very similar uh, story with uh, the, the um, Canadian state and, and uh, First Nations, uh, Métis, Inuit uh, communities. Um, so, so, yeah, there, I mean, the, the parallels are, are many. And I, and I think sometimes, actually, it's, it's really good to teach one of these or, or you know, to, to study history in a, in a, in a, a global perspective because um, it, it does bring to the fore some of the bigger themes. And, um, uh, and, and I always try to, you know, present the, um, the human experience. Uh, you know, we're doing humanities and history. So uh, just the, um, the experiences and the struggles and the, perseverance and the um, the tragedies um, the sufferings the right the you know, the, the successes that, that uh, human beings face but but also right, sometimes well in the modern period you know the uh, of course we have a very powerful state and and uh, rising nationalism so 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 yeah there, there are certainly many uh, parallels uh, and themes that we could link uh, we can use to link up uh, Meiji restoration with other yeah, the, the other uh, histories of the globe. Uh, I like that approach of, of making sure to emphasize the, the human story. Yeah, yes. Because I mean, it seems like oftentimes in kind of zooming out yeah. to the global level, yes. I mean, we almost out of necessity have to reduce everything to big meta-narratives. Yes. Right? Combine, you know, comparing Japan to France or something mm -hmm. like this, or comparing Japan to the U.S. or, yeah, or Canada, oh, yeah. and sometimes Absolutely. in talking about major changes, primarily from this macro level of political institutions yeah. or or just waves, right? Mm -hmm. And it's it's very easy to forget that there's a human impact. Yes. So how do you? So what are some of the ways you reconcile those two things? Well, in uh, most of my courses there, um, I I really try to incorporate a lot of primary sources um, and. Uh, yeah, the U of L, the bookstore uh, does a great job of uh, creating these course packs, you know, and and so I'll put it in order. I'll, um, you know, might be 120 to 150 pages of primary sources, and uh, those will often uh, now, yeah, those will often help to uh, tell a human story, uh, you know, especially if they are. Um, written by uh, the common people, uh, letters or, or um, uh, first-hand accounts of, of events, uh, you know, memoirs. Uh, and, and, of course, within those sources, there are, um, uh, you know, things like the Meiji Constitution and, mm -hmm. and sort of the, um, the official, uh, the state-produced uh, uh, text as well. Uh, but, yeah, I, I do try to use those uh, to, to give uh, a voice to... Um, right, the, the, the common people, uh, women, men, uh, young people, uh, old. Um, uh, so, so I, I, yeah, I hope that those kind of are able to, uh, all right, th those uh, sources, 
sort of uh, give us a, a look into right the experiences of, of the uh, right the people. But but yeah, anytime I, I teach uh, the history and I do a, a lecture, um, yeah, I, I certainly don't want to be uh, narrating just you know the the history according to the state or the top down version. Um, but uh, yeah, I try to try to give uh, multiple multiple. Uh, voices, um, representation, so multivocality, you know, it's a neat word, uh, but it, it's a good uh, approach, right, for history. Um, in, in trying to, right, you, you really want to try to, um, you know, if, if you are trying to recreate uh, or, or reconstruct an event or a time, uh, you, you want to bring in as many actors and, and many voices as you, as you can. One primary source in, in particular that comes to mind, mm -hmm. the as central as the Iwakura mission is yes. in Japanese history, yes. it's amazing that the diary written by Kume Kunetake is mm. not used more. Uh, uh. And it's been published in English in, in, uh, in uh. I think, five volumes, uh. giant volumes. And that's a good, that's I, always, a good point. <laughs> I always thought it would be fun to do a class, a global history from the perspective of Kume Kunitake. Because ah, yes. as they go around to each place, the Kume writes his very fastidious notes about mm -hmm. everything that the Iwakura mission yes. sees. Uh, in my own research, I've, I've street street pavements. Yeah, and so yeah. he's talking about how exactly the streets are being paved in each ah, of the cities they go yeah, to. Yeah, yeah. But there's also a history section mm -hmm. of each mm -hmm. country. Ah, okay. And so they go around to all the countries of Europe. They uh -huh. go through the United States. There is, there's even a section where Kume is, uh, is commenting on race relations in the United States yes, in the okay. 1870s when they go there. It's fascinating. And uh -huh. I mean, maybe just do a class, you know, world history through the Iwakura mission. And just Why not? Yeah, no, that would diaries. be a fantastic course. And um, that, it, that would have so much texture. And, and yeah, I mean... Uh, uh, there, yeah, the Iwakura mission and and uh, the Kandin Maru uh, mission of 1860 as well, and you know we read about uh, their experiences of right, going to San Francisco and being okay. received, and all the the banquets they they're received at, and and hearing the right the champagne cork popped yeah. and thinking you know gunshot, is, <laughs> right. you know gun is just Fukuzawa fired. lighting his sleeve. Yes, on fire yes, <laughs> uh, exactly. Uh, so so yeah, I mean those and and those are so. Uh, vivid and telling and and um, of, of right people who went out into the world and, and saw a peoples in the society that that uh, uh, were completely new to them and uh, right I mean these these distinguished educated uh, um, diplomatic uh, figures uh, acting like like children right I mean uh, right uh, just uh, their amazement and and um, uh, and uh, right, discovery of, of uh, new society. So, so yeah, that, that would be an interesting course, I think. Uh, uh, and, uh, yeah, yeah, but, but that, I think, I mean, those, yeah, memoirs, um, uh, I mean, in, in my uh, book, book manuscript, um, I'm looking at the, um, uh, right, the, the, these changes from, well, throughout the 19th century and, Looking at it from the view of these um, local intellectuals, uh, many of them poets, you know, painters, uh, they become uh, students of the uh, Hirata School of Kokugaku, and and uh, they're viewing uh, their community and and uh, Tsugaru, uh, and but but also the larger changes happening in, in Japan, and so yeah, you, you certainly get a sense of change from the perspective of of uh, in, in in the case of this uh, book. Um, 
right? Merchant class intellectuals, uh, merchant class uh, poets and, and, and scholars um, who are, right? I mean, they're, they're uh, uh, on one hand, um, you know, they see uh, the restoration uh, and, and as a new dawn uh, for them. And, and uh, you know, they're seeing uh, their revered emperor uh, put to the fore of the state. And, uh, you know, they think, they think this is the, the start of uh, right, uh, Shinto's revival. And, and it is for the first couple of years. And, and some of the Shinto priests are involved in, in carrying out uh, religious reform, which, which entails uh, persecution of, of Buddhists and, and destruction of, of Buddhist temples and, and Buddhist um, uh, relics uh, uh, in order to uh, establish a sort of a, 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 a dominant uh, state, a Shinto. Um, but, uh, but you also see them uh, grappling uh, with, with the fact that Japan is now uh, adopting ideas from the West and, mm. uh, and from China and, and that Shinto would not be the, uh, I mean, it does become a state Shinto, but, but uh, major Japan does um, adopt an amalgam of, of ideas and institutions from well, uh, the West and China and from, well, from ancient Japan. And so, uh, so, so I, I, I see a, a community of, of, of people who are really uh, grappling and struggling with, with modernity and understanding how their community is changing and, and trying to sort of reconcile uh, their values with, with uh, right, a, a world that's, that's really changing around them. The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.